Welcome to the LSI Behind the Wind podcast. My name is Sean Slatter. For 30 years, I've dedicated my life to the science of business development, seeing the impact of our work, which has evolved into economic development and now social impact. Today, I'm, I've asked Gay Cookson to join me and talk about our work in both economic development and social impact. It's something that we've our team has focused heavily on and it's a major part of our strategy. And Gay has led a lot of our economic development and social impact work over the last few years. So Gay, thanks for being with me. Could you start, just talk about your history and your career and some of your work with LSI over the last few years? Absolutely. Thanks for having me. You know, I love to talk shop, so I was looking forward to this. I thought I might start with just a little bit of background, what I was up to before I you uh, brought me onto the LSI team. I've spent most of my much of my career working with PBS, PBS Utah, and other entities at the University of Utah, including the College of Fine Arts. After I'd been with the uh, working with the college on building transformational campaigns to connect campus to community, Governor Herbert asked me to serve as director of arts and museums. And when the governor asked you to fill a role, it's hard to say no. And I'm glad I did. It was a great experience. I also was with the Department of Heritage and Arts. And then uh, the university brought me back after a few years, and I served as director of research and science at the U and my role there was to you know research at the U at the at the U, when I joined was doing about 600 million dollars a year in sponsored research and we were uh, attempting to grow that by about 7% a year and it was my role to build a new department that facilitated more research both more research and more funding so basically more shots on goal and more successful shots on goal and that was a fun job until, and you, Sean, you were on my hiring committee. And uh, so you've hired me twice. Yes, that's which correct. I, which I was, I'm really, uh, I'm proud of. Uh, so you, after I'd been at the U for a few years, you offered me to join the LSI team. And that was, I, I couldn't wait to see, work with you closer. Oh, it was, that was an exciting time. We put together a strategy to build a new social sciences building. We raised $64 million, all with private funding. And part of that was a initially a social sciences center of excellence within this building at the University of Utah. And we were looking for somebody that had the ability to lead this effort. And we were really excited to have you in this role. And I, I always admired what you had done with the state and then with the University of Utah and was excited to have you join our team. You know, research is really important on campuses for a number of reasons. One, it, it makes the campus a more robust place for students. And of course, there's the money side of it. But, you know, it's really the, the core of research is solving complex societal problems. And that's exactly what you are trying to do on campus to build that capacity to address very complex societal problems. So you, you joined our team and, and I, I love that uh, you, you came in and you said, what, what am I gonna be doing? What are we, <laughs> what, what we gonna do together? We wanna, you said, I wanna do something really special and exciting and meaningful. And so we 
built this strategy and have been working this strategy over the last few years and have seen a lot of really great ideas come out of that strategy. And it, it has evolved over time, but I think we've got a, a really great model. You want to talk about some of that initial strategy work that we did together in, in putting both a strategy and a plan to execute that strategy? Yeah, sure. I'd love to. One of the things that is really fun for me and my team is our commitment to developing business for small businesses, uh, really building that capacity around helping them win business and expand. Um, and within that small and within the small business group, particularly 8A companies, which are companies that are traditionally underrepresented in the federal contracting space, veteran-owned business, women-owned businesses, businesses owned by disabilities, or people that are, I guess in general, that are not traditionally represented in the marketplace. And we have, that has been so successful. And, you know, it's terrific to see these small businesses succeed and to, and to see all that federal money come to Utah. I mean, that's our taxpayer, that's our, our tax money, Sean, that we're all paying. And it's delightful to see that come to Utah and our clients all across the country. So when we talk about the LSI economic development model, there's really three elements to this. One is geography. The second is a vertical market or ecosystem focus. And the, th the third is demographic. And what I think has been so exciting about the work that we have done with a lot of states over the, the last 20 plus years has been marrying these various disciplines of looking at a geographic area, understanding what the needs are, the labor supply and demand curve, and what that looks like building revenue and strategy around vertical markets, and then incorporating this demographic element to it. And we've really done that well in a number of, of different states over the last 20 years. You have recently won a large contract for LSI. You were the capture lead and even led the proposal effort do you want to talk about that? Actually, we, we've won a number of contracts with this same state entity. Maybe talk about the three pieces of this, because I think it's really a great model that we can replicate elsewhere across the United States. So, Gay, you've, you've won a number of contracts with this state entity, and it's a state with about $4 million residents. Talk about what these various contracts look like. Sure. This was a particularly satisfying one to, one to win because it a little reminds me of the, the last effort I just, we talked about, about bringing federal money into the state. This was really, which was more around contracting. We just won a contract to work with the state to help them secure federal funding. And, you know, there's a lot of federal funding right now out there, a lot of federal spending. The Biden administration has a lot of money floating out there. And it's great when we can bring that to 
the state to help them build their prior their business priorities, right? They have five priorities in the industry priorities, and there's money out there that we can help build up. And we have this very, to build that pipeline, we have a very deliberate process that's very successful. We spend a lot of time with the initial needs, identification, and analysis with the client. We have an amazing research team that can look at what the analytics are behind opportunities. And then we move to the proposal design and management phase. And that's really where people think it starts, but it's really not. It was those first two steps that really get you in the place where you're ready for proposal development and management. And that can be anything from a 15-page to a you know 100-page proposal. But the idea is we want our we want this client to get the money, and we don't have want them to have to work or worry about it. We just want them to be able to see open up their email and see that they got the award. Don't you think it was really quite visionary by the state to put together this initiative? This was in play really before the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act really became a a reality. And I thought this was a very strategic move by this state entity that uh, we're working with to put together this initiative now where they are in in a great position to capture a lot of this funding that has recently been appropriated. I mean, $1.6 trillion now is, I think, what the, the total number is. They're, of all of the states we work with, I thought it was such a strategic move for this entity to contract with us to help them identify and capture grants specifically that would then be used, that funding would be used to implement their overall strategy. Absolutely. It was it was it was visionary. And you know what what we're doing besides just responding, we're really crafting the entire state strategy right. to how to be successful in capturing. We're not just responding. It's really oh, a right. a very strategic comprehensive strategy to make sure that we're maximizing the opportunities for the client. And you know it, it's just and it's, it's tough, Sean. There are, this client has a lot of rural areas. There are 114 various departments at the federal level that support rural business across the country. There's just no way any one state entity or any, you know, county commissioners or local municipality can just, there's no way they can keep up with that. But we have this secret sauce of you know, proprietary search system with thousands of opportunities that we look at daily with our research team. And they're geeky, searchy people and they love to do this kind of work right. and they're excellent at it. There's no way that that a, a, a state agency or department or municipality could possibly, you know, keep up with the proprietary system that we have. Yes. Thank you. Proprietary, right. Thank you. Thank you. So what we envision will happen with this concept is the state has has contracted with us to identify, work all the capture, all the proposal for 
these grants, that funding then will be used to work the overall strategy for this state. I just, I, I think it was really unique and creative approach to helping the governor of this state, the legislature implement their vision and strategy and the priorities for this state. So what do you envision that some of this funding will be used for? We know some of it will be used for ecosystem development or what we call cluster development. What are some of the other well, I, I think the two priorities, I, I, we just spent quite a bit of time talking about our process and, and how we help yeah. our client win these opportunities. But I, it kind of falls into two chunks, Sean. There's the ecosystem development. And let me say something about that for a minute. You know, really the enduring competitive advantage of a global economy is increasingly lying at the local aspects of business where knowledge relationships and motivations that distant rivals cannot match we're able to respond to in a very local way yes it's a global economy but what happens inside companies is as important as the business environment right and that's where building these ecosystems is really successful what we can do is we by help by bringing resources to these local ecosystems, we can increase their productivity, drive the direction and pace of innovation, which supports future growth and productivity, and stimulate the formation of new business, which expands the strength of the cluster or ecosystem itself. So it's really a iterative process where we help these ecosystems in, invest and they they grow and we invest and they grow and they grow and it's it's a it's a beautiful iterative process. And then the other focus besides the ecosystem clusters is really I mentioned rural engagements. There's really some social glue that binds rural businesses together uh, that facilitates access to resources and information. And LSI is just there's nobody better than LSI at boots on the ground at working with local decision makers, tapping into rural leadership, local resources, personal relationships, and face-to-face contacts to make sure everybody's moving together in a common interest. It's exciting. And I love that our team is so invested in these communities where they can really partner with these rural communities to understand what does their vision look like? What assets are available today that that we can leverage? And, you know, understanding what the needs are and where we are today and where we want to be in, in 20 years. One of the things that I'm really proud of in my career is that over 20 years ago, We worked with a fairly rural community in Alabama. We worked their strategy for them. Today, this area now has over a, I mean, we've created over 150,000 jobs in this, what was a rural area of Alabama. And it's just, it's an exciting, it's exciting to see that strategy implemented over these two decades. It's a, it was... Yeah, I want to go back to that example in a minute. But first, can we talk a minute about one of the things our 
my clients really appreciate, Sean, is how we're able to be more efficient and more effective by handling multiple areas of their business. And it's not just LSI looking for more work. We are really committed to being the most efficient, effective customer service oriented company. So when you, when we, in fact, I'd, I'd like to think we partner with organizations, they don't hire us. It's a very collaborative, transparent process right. when we build a relationship, but it saves the client money in the long run, because if they use LSI as a vendor to handle their business development, their grants and contracts, their workforce development, we have this seamless integration of strategy and to be able to execute all, all parts of their needs. I mean, it ends up in lowering costs. The overhead margins are lower. Profits are compounded. There's a more efficient method to complete the scope of work and on time. The lines of accountability are clear. When obstacles come up, we only have to solve them once, right? It's not multiple vendors addressing obstacles. And, you know, coordination with subcontractors and partners is just such a smooth process, Sean. Once a client, once one of my clients has worked with us, they just like, why haven't we done this before? This is such an easy way to do business. Yeah. Well, and I think that that's been our model for 50 years that we bring in the right team for whatever this is to win the business, to execute the strategy, and then once that happens, we can dissolve this team and it's not these entities having to carry that overhead and looking for the right subject matter experts to, to make this happen. We have that. We have that capability to bring the team together, win the business or ex- execute on the strategy and then dissolve it and look at the next opportunity. It, it's been a great model. Absolutely. So okay, let's yeah, go back go ahead. To, well, no, I just wanted to go back to one uh, some things I'm thinking about for next year that I think are really exciting for the company. Yeah. And the commonality amongst all of them, it's really job growth. But it's the thing that's unique is LSI's commitment to social impact in all things we do, and particularly around this, our efforts next year and job growth. So a lot of companies talk about social impact, but Sean, it's really in your heart and soul that you believe that you can do good business and do good for a community at the same time. I mean, I've seen you do it for years, as long as I've known you. And it's not just lip service. It's really something that you do and you're committed to. And the the thing that's crazy about companies that say it and don't do it, Sean, it's actually been better for our business when we actually do it. I mean, you do it because it's the right thing to do, but it actually makes for better business. And not all, not everybody out there has that commitment that you do. So I'm working on three pieces next year that are both workforce development and social impact. There's three groups of people that are traditionally underemployed that should not be. And one of those groups, I'll go through all three of them, is one is adults with autism. So it's a terrifying thing for parents that have an adult child with autism that leaves the supported system when they're 21. And the thing that's just, besides being terrifying to parents, 
these kids turning into adults really have amazing capability. But because of messaging in school, messaging from peers, messaging from social media or traditional media, they just don't have the confidence that they need to either do post-secondary education or get a job, something other than a unskilled labor job. And we're working with a national organization that we're going to, and you know, I think there's a lot of attention around children with autism and it's just maybe not as heart pulling if, if you're talking about adults with autism, but it's absolutely heart pulling if they're your children because these kids do grow up. And we're going to help these. uh, This organization tells me that their statistics show that only 30% of adults with autism have any kind of learning disability. That means 70% of adults with autism, for the most part, are out there underemployed. And the other piece of that, Sean, is that we're working with this organization is employers don't know how to interview people with autism. And, you know, there's no fault in that. It's just getting up to speed on, on what's what we can do for people that have different neurological processing than we do. So that's one group that we're going to help. And guess what? These folks are, they're needed in jobs around in their communities. The second group is refugees. And this ties back to the project you were talking about back East. We have a learning system that we used in, in West Virginia that we're going to implement in another state where we're gonna train refugees about 250 a year to do these very high demand IT jobs, which I don't know if you wanna know them, they're like development and operation engineers, full stack developers, data scientists, I don't need to go into that, but they're very high demand IT jobs. And what we can do is train as a freestanding organization, we can train folks to be certified in these jobs in nine months rather than four years. So they basically have the same skill set as somebody that graduates with a bachelor's in computer science, but it's streamlined and, and just on the responding to the needs of the employer, not the liberal education pieces. And I'm a believer in liberal education, but not for everybody. And one of the things that this training does that makes it so successful, Sean, is that it really takes advantage of the prior knowledge, the prior life knowledge of these immigrants, where they have maybe raised healthy and safe families on very constrained budgets with a lot of determination and grit and pressure, perseverance, which is what we need in 21st century problem solving, right? And also the other piece that really makes this program work is that the faculty are immigrants themselves. That's right. And it makes all the difference in the world, Sean, to be able to see yourself and the person that's transferring knowledge to you. So we're working again, that's a one of the falls in that category of social impact and meeting and demand in the workforce. And the final piece is, you know, incarceration in this country is just crazy. We have the highest percentage of incarcerated people in the world in the United States. And there's a lot of reasons for that that we don't need to get into. But the, the statistics for if somebody gets their bachelor's degree while they're in prison, they have a 1% recidivism rate. 1% compared to what it is. I mean, don't quote me on the numbers, but right now it's about 70 to 80%. So there's somewhere in between there. Not everybody's going to be in prison long enough to earn a bachelor's degree. But 
almost everybody's in prison long enough to earn a certificate or an associate's degree. So we're working with a, a state to build a comprehensive, integrated higher education program in these incarceration system. So that, and then when those folks get out, so we'll help manage that process. And then when those folks get out, Sean, we're gonna help them get jobs because that's the other thing we do is we place people in, in jobs. I love all three of these projects and opportunities. Let's talk about the evolution of this for a minute. 20 years ago, we were working with this state entity and we'd had a lot of success and this group, we were creating about 10,000 new jobs a year with our team in this area. And it was a myriad of jobs. One of our associates in a different entity came to us, approached us and said, what you're doing is incredible. In fact, what, what had happened was our team was testifying before a legislative committee on the work that we had done the previous fiscal year inside of this state. And the director of this other entity came to this testimony. He, he wanted to hear what our team had to say. And during that discussion, he asked if he could speak. He wasn't on the agenda, but asked if he could speak and said, this is incredible. We love what you're doing for our state. We would like to challenge you to create jobs for a demographic. And we had never done this before. We had had a lot of success in job creation around certain industries and obviously in these various geographic areas. But had we at that point, we had never worked a demographic initiative. And he challenged us. He said, I just have built this analysis. We have identified by name 5,000 unemployed veterans in a region of about 50 miles, a 50-mile a 50 radius. And we would like for you to take your concept of job creation and build jobs for these unemployed veterans. And so I can remember our team coming back and saying, we have this idea, we're gonna, they've got, this group has funding and by name, we, they've identified these unemployed veterans. We wanna go after this. And I, I remember saying to our team, this is not what we do. This is not, and I don't think you have any idea of what that's gonna look like to, take an individual and, and determine what his or her capabilities are and then try to marry that individual into a job. But what we found and part of the success that we have implemented over the last 20 years in this demographic work has been, we're gonna create blocks of jobs for these individuals, which we can take a large amount of this demographic and help them integrate into these jobs that we create. And what we found with this initiative, Gay, was that a lot of these individuals, after they had left their time in the service, had P 
PTSD. They had a lot of social challenges, uh, domestic challenges, a lot of uh, challenges with addiction. And so many of them had not worked after their service with the military. And it was such a great model for some of the other demographic work that we have done over the last 20 years, including these projects that and focus that you'd talked about, which I, I'm going to get back to. But as I said, what we found was we would work with private and public entities to create these large blocks of jobs and then take these individuals and help them understand what the objective was, what they had to accomplish, and hold their hand through this process, which it was much more intense work than we thought. I can remember our team saying, and we've got this idea of what this demographic look, looks like, that initially they thought it was the kids that had come back from Afghanistan and Iraq initially, 20, almost 20 years ago. But in reality, it wasn't. It was the majority of these individuals were 55 to 70 and had missed that tech bubble. And so that that was an added challenge where we would, you know, we had this idea, well, I can't believe that, that, that these individuals weren't wandering into a library and, and using the computer and looking for jobs. They, they didn't even know how to work a cell phone, many of them. So the things that we learned coming out of that initial project was how can we take individuals that have emotional and medical challenges and integrate them into the workforce? How can we take individuals that have a history of addiction and integrate them into the workforce? How can we take individuals that lack skills and training and integrate them into the workforce? And the success that we had with that project, I also remember telling our team, we cannot fail at this. This is a high visibility project that is also really an emotional project for our company, for, for this client. And what we found was if we, if our team can stay with that individual for six months, they break the cycle. We saw so many incredible, really uh, miracles where we would take an individual that had not worked since his time in the service, had addiction issues, made, some of these individuals were homeless and we would help them get a job, work with them on a daily basis to make sure that they showed up on time, that they accomplished their objective for their employer. And then after this six month period of time, they had this path forward. And we have been able to take that model and work with a lot of different demographics. You mentioned autism. We've, we've had a long history working with individuals with disabilities and helping those individuals find the right job for them and be integrated into the workforce. So these initiatives that you talked about, the individuals with autism, the recidivism work, and I, I really wanna talk to you for a minute about that initiative. 
and the, the refugee project all have emanated from that project almost 20 years ago with these veterans. And the postscript to this was we created over 5,000 jobs for these veterans. It really was a, an exciting time in our company's history that changed our focus and strategy because of the success that we had. And I can tell you that there was everyone in this state entity, including the, the, the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the agency we were working with all had little faith that we were going to be able to have this kind of impact. And it really became the model for our social impact work. So well, I think one of the things we're both talking about, Sean, if a way to summarize it is that access to education and online education is not equal. Right. It's not equal for all people. And we have this intervention that you developed, nurtured 20 years ago that we continue to expand on. This intervention that moves quick is in freestanding and nimble that works. It's an intervention that works. What we saw, and we, we still see this with a lot of federal, state, and municipal entities, is that an agency or a nonprofit or, will have this idea, we, we want to create jobs for a demographic, and they're, they're trying to shop resumes, individual resumes, and it doesn't work. That is not the, the model. The model is through our business development to create large blocks of jobs, preferably with a for-profit entity, you create these large blocks of jobs, and then you take these demographics and place them into these jobs that we've created. So- Exactly, and you know, it, Sean, you, you make it sound so logical, but it takes some courage to do that. It takes some courage yes. and risk. I just wanna mention another population we, we're doing some good work with, and would like to do more is with Native American communities yes. in the country. And, you know, there's a lot of opportunities to support tribal communities. And it's absolutely necessary that we build trust with tribal communities so that we can help them win some of these opportunities. And it means we have to, you know, talk about face indigenous genocide in this country, cultural erasure, and you know, it's it's not always easy conversations, but we have the tough conversations here about what's happened in this country. Absolutely. So, Gay, let's talk about a couple of these projects. I mean, I think what you're doing with this autism initiative across the U.S. is remarkable. I, w I really want to talk about the recidivism and the refugee in initiative. Let's start with the recidivism were one of the, the reasons why I am so excited about this is it was another initiative that we, that LSI was focused on nearly 20 years ago now. My background as an economist was, has really, has got me intrigued by some of the, the success that has been achieved through job creation for former inmates, especially in Europe. I went to Europe a couple of times to see these initiatives 
it really started with a social impact bond. And for those of you that are not aware of what this looks like, it's funding by a private entity that is going to fund a social problem and that the it just like any other bond just like a municipal bond and that funding if the initiative is successful the private entity will then share in either the cost savings or revenue creation that is achieved through this initiative and there's a lot of literature on this that we can provide in the episode notes but Nearly 20 years ago, there was a, an entity in the UK that had this idea. If we funded the, this job creation for former inmates, we could reduce the recidivism rate of these inmates. And it was a fairly small funding tranche initially. I think it was a million dollars. And using that a million dollars US, using that million dollar investment, this private entity was able to, as you had mentioned previously, take the recidivism rate to zero. And it was all through job creation. And I went in and saw this initiative both in the UK and in the Republic of Ireland. And it really was remarkable. And I wanted to We've done some social impact work, uh, social impact bond work, taking funding from private entities, and we've seen the, the results of that. But I've always wanted to replicate that work in Europe in the US around recidivism. And so maybe talk about some of the strategies that we have developed in this initiative. Sure. I think we're a good match on this, Sean, because you have experience from one side and I have experience. I taught a class in the prison for three years before COVID hit and then closed down my class. And I'm also a graduate student in the College of Education. So I'm a big believer in post-secondary education. So I bring that passion to it. And you have some knowledge from your experience you described before. But I think one of the things that is going to make this program particularly successful is there are a lot of post-secondary institutions dabbling in education for people that are incarcerated, both juvenile and adults. Yes. And it's a really, there's, there's no coordination among the groups. All the groups are going for their individual funding. There's no survey, not in answering questions, but more like a mapping of what are all the programs that are happening in the state, in the state, and you know, what are the best practices? So I think there's a lack of efficiency and a lack of effectiveness. So the strategy here, Sean, is that there's will really be a coordinating, not that anybody has to change their programs. We, you know, individuality and programs, unique programs, there's there's a lot of value in that. But there needs to be some kind of coordination about how the funding is efficient. Again, it always goes back to taxpayer money, Sean. I mean, we need to be good stewards of taxpayer money and make sure it's spent efficiently and effectively and that there's coordination, that we know what the best practices are that are and decisions are informed by data 
and that these programs are being executed well. So one piece is make is having effective execution in the prison that and so that when they get out that we can help them get placed because they've had an effective program while they were there. I love so it. Again, it's kind of this, it reminds me, Sean, of what I was talking to the client with this statewide strategy. It's the same okay. thing. This is what makes programs function well, is exactly. that there's a statewide strategy to make it effective and efficient and maximize taxpayer dollars and grant dollars. Well, and I think part of the, the challenge with post-incarceration employment, every facility has a transition objective to place these former inmates in a job and, and create the, a path. And it has not worked for exactly the reason that we had mentioned previously. They're tr these organizations are taking an individual and trying to shop that individual's skill set, whatever it may be, into businesses where they're begging these businesses, please give this individual an opportunity. That doesn't work. It is that the success rate is low when you're taking and shopping an individual, his or her resume into public and private businesses. What we've found that works is, and it really was part of the success that we had with the veteran initiative. One of the things I didn't mention was we worked with a Fortune 500 company. We won a contract that we were also working a TANF initiative at the time. TANF is Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, an element of TANF which is a Department of Health and Human Services program. One of the objectives and strategies of TANF is to migrate individuals off of public assistance through getting them training and placing them into high-wage high jobs. So in the middle of the, the veteran initiative, we'd also, because we'd had a lot of success, we, we had also won this TANF initiative. We started working with a Fortune 500 company. We helped them win a contract that they needed 1,600 employees. They couldn't find these employees. And they were, it wasn't no skill, but it, it was two weeks of training. You could, you could take an individual and place them into one of these positions. And we worked that with the veterans, we worked that with the TANF eligible individuals and filled 1,600 positions with these individuals that had no training. And many of them had not, many of, especially the TANF eligible individuals had never been in the workforce before. So part of the strategy with the recidivism project is you work with a company, help that company win the business to create these jobs, and then you place large blocks of these former inmates into these positions. Everyone knows the history and the, you know, the challenges that these individuals have coming out of prison, and they're now in the workforce. They now have a path to advance in their career post-incarceration. And that's, 
that's what I'm really excited about as we replicate this program throughout the United States. And guess guess what, Sean? That's what they want. They want jobs. Exactly. They're grateful for jobs. Absolutely. Okay, so let's talk about the the refu- refugee strategy as well. This is a another initiative that's really close to my heart. A few years ago, we were asked by a, a state entity, and we were brought into this engagement through a state entity who who suggested that we work with a community college who had a contract with this state to take refugees and teach them life skills. And our team was invited into this into this program where we would our role was to help refugees find jobs. They were they were working with this community college to on some training and English as a second language. And then our team was taking these individuals and placing them in into jobs. One of the things that I just loved about this project and have always remembered was they had invited a an executive from a software. It was a large uh, multi-billion dollar software company. This executive would come in on the weekends and volunteer his time to teach these refugees how to use basic, teach them basic computer skills. And it was like a three or four hour class every Saturday. And these refugees, these individuals would come in and he would teach them just how do you operate a web browser? How do you navigate some basic applications? And what he found was that these refugees, as they were learning English as a second language, they picked up these computer skills really well. He was, he and this company, this huge multi-billion dollar multinational software company was, they were having such a hard time finding computer programmers. What he started doing with these individuals was he'd say, hey, I'd like you to run this basic programming language. And he found that, that his words were, you know, they're, they're learning language. It's sort of the same thing about programming. They're just, it's a, it's a language. And he has now hired 200 refugees out of this program to be computer programmers with no computer, prior computer skills or computer degrees. They're now in the company doing programming. So I just, that's something that I often tell the story is we talk about what is the art of the possible in creating jobs for whatever the demographic is. Right. And I I think so much of that, Sean, is I talked about this briefly before, is just that what refugees bring in life skills to their, their education and their work. I mean, they're so creative and so entrepreneurial incredibly entrepreneurial. I mean, to leave your country of origin, right. that's, that's the original entrepreneur. And, you know, to, to maintain the safety and the health of your family and a very constrained budget, 
you know, that's that's an amazing skill set. <clears throat> I agree. Skill set. We have been working with a state in which there are 80,000 unemployed refugees that need jobs. And there's been a lot of discussion about the recent Afghanistan refugees that have come to the U.S. throughout and have, have been placed throughout the U.S. and are, they need jobs. They need, we need to be telling these stories with these Afghanistan refugees here. How do we help them find a path forward? So your strategy around job creation for refugees, I think is brilliant. And uh, I'm really excited. You know what, what I think a lot of this comes back to why LSI has been so successful in, in this enterprise is, and we keep referring to it, some of these issues are incredibly complex. The, they are. And they involve, they touch so many different areas of society, you know, housing, healthcare, economies. It, it's just, it, they're very, very complex. And it's easy, Sean, to get paralyzed by thinking about how complex these problems are. But, you know, that's in our name, the logistics, right? <laughs> logistics specialties. That's that's where, that's our sweet spot. That's our fast lane. That's where our people thrive is in the complexities of where boots hit the ground. And so some of these, these programs, they don't, we don't bat an eye to jump at them because we know we can do them because that's what we do. It's just, that's not, saying other people aren't essential partners in that. I think what we do is we bring all the right partners together, but it's very easy for not-for-profits and for-profit organizations and government entities just to get siloed because they're working so hard doing what their you know, missions are. It's hard to see the forest through the trees and that's where LSI can come in and, and is not, we're not daunted <laughs> by the complexities. No, exactly. I think... In retrospect, on those early demographic engagements that we worked, it was such an impossible task. We knew that, and especially when we started working with these individuals, with with these veterans and these TANF-eligible individuals, we knew two things. I just kept telling the team, this is going to be really hard, and you're going to face these challenges that are insurmountable and you're going to see things that you never anticipated. <laughs> you need to go into this with a mindset. You cannot fail. You cannot fail at this and whatever comes up, whatever it is, we're going to find a solution around it. And in some, we were lucky, I think, that we had this individual, this client that believed in us, that took a risk on us because of the work that we had done in the geographic and industry focused strategies to say, I mean, he was such a, so visionary in saying, hey, we could apply this to some of these demographics that are, have historically been hard to employ. And he gave us two of the most challenging demographics. And because of that, we built this model that has been, we've been able to then work with 
individuals with disabilities, individuals with addictions, it, it, the homeless, the refugees, this recidivism project. There's, it just, it, we were lucky to have that opportunity to provide this kind of support for these veterans, and it was an honor to, to do so, but we learned a lot, and that has given us the tools that have then allowed us to take that basic model and now work with these other demographics. It, it, it's really exciting. Can I tell you about two Please. more projects that I think yes, I'm I excited that. about? Yeah. One is I'm passionate about helping technology advance. And there's a lot of opportunity in the SBIR, STTR space. Yeah, let's and talk our, about what that is. I mean, there's a lot of people that probably don't understand what that is. Do you want to? Sure. I just to, it's a it is a complicated program, but I think to say it just briefly is if you have any kind of product you're developing that you think is marketable, any kind of technology, and technology is think of that very broadly. Technology is not computers. Technology is any new way of doing anything. If you have a new way of doing anything, there's there's opportunities we can go after called SBIR grants that we would love to help people with. I so love let me, let me stop you. Oh, go, go ahead. I oh, get sorry. too excited. I know. It is a, this is exciting. So the SBIR, what that stands for is Small Business Innovative Research, SBIR. STTR is Small Business Technology Transfer Program. So STTR, Small Business Technology Transfer. It is a federal program that it was designed and implemented around small businesses in which they can win a grant, some funding that will allow them to take an idea, this as you said, technology, and, and there's a lot of different definitions of what that is, what the definition of technology. I, I just and, encourage people to think very broadly about technology. Yes, exactly. But technology is a way of doing something. We have taken a state where we have worked with this state entity. They have paid us to identify companies and organizations within universities where these entities can win this grant. And it's, you can even win up to a million dollars. It's not, it's, you don't have to pay that money back as a small business. You don't have to, you know, it's not like angel funding. It's the idea is how do we create innovation out of small businesses and out of universities? We took this state from being the worst in SBIR, STTR grant awards to being number one. Hey, I'm glad you mentioned universities because that's another thing that has so much potential for people all across the country is there are a whole bunch of new set-asides for university funding that's in the middle of the country. There's Congress has noticed that a lot of the federal research funding is going to the East and the West Coast. And there's a whole bunch of new set-asides for the countries in the middle. 
and we're, we're I'm really eager to help. I, I just love to see like the smaller business or the smaller university get this kind of funding. So I'm hoping to have some opportunities to help clients with that as well. And it's huge. It's it's about four to five billion dollars every year administered through the SBA. And we've talked on some previous episodes about our relationship with the Department of Commerce and the SBA and our long history there. But this is such a great opportunity to create jobs in various regions. If you're a state entity and you're looking at technology as a focus and that you want to help infuse funding into technology development, this is a this is a great place to start. Yeah, well, that, that Sean, but also don't forget it. There's also some new research money for uh, yes. smaller universities. That's right. So you can do, there's, there's really a couple of phases of this where you, you, you develop the concept, you look at, you know, a prototype or, or taking it to market. And it can be over $2 million that an entity, a small business or a, a university department can take this concept, this technology to market and create jobs. So yeah, and guess what? Our team is excellent at this process. We we have a over a 90% win rate on our capture and proposal of SBIR and STTR grants and have worked for almost 20 years with several states in in this work and it is it is exciting. So I I appreciate you bringing that up. So, Gay, as we wrap up, we've talked about a lot of different things, but I think what's really relevant now is going back to what we talked about as we open this up, the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, this $1.3 trillion funding, the outcome of this is has to be about job creation. The funding is going into these various areas and focus that Josh Johnson and I recently discussed, but the outcome of this is jobs. I mean, this really is the postscript to what Josh and I had talked about a few weeks ago in this breakdown of what the the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act looks like. If you're a state, you know, even a federal entity or a state entity or a municipal entity that is looking at revenue through job creation and tax, this is how you accomplish this, is job creation in these various areas. And I think we gave a great illustration of the vast capability of of how we can take a demographic, create jobs, and then place these individuals into these jobs created. The catalyst for this will be this funding. And I think our social impact work this year, especially is just, it's going to be a big part of our focus. And, you know, some of these opportunities, Sean, are written a little differently than the previous administration. There's more of a focus on sustainability, environmental issues, serving um, traditionally underrepresented people. Tribal. Exactly. And the, these new priorities that are coming out under the 
review priorities under the Biden administration, that's that's where we've been doing work for 20 years. So. Exactly. Gay, can I ask you one other personal question? Yeah. You're about to finish your doctorate degree. Do you want to just talk about that for two minutes? Sure. Well, I've got, I'm, I'm close. I'm in the home stretch. I've got two more semesters and dissertation, but my work is my, my research interest is where trauma intersects with higher education. So trauma is common is there's war trauma, accidents, interpersonal violence, complicated grief. Almost everybody faces trauma at some point in their life. And it can be, there's, there's resilience, which if you have resilience in your personality, you get back to where you are. You can bounce back. But what I'm interested in is this concept called post-traumatic growth, where if you go through this very painful sometimes and reflective process that is usually can be facilitated professionally or with non-professionals, that you can become a more competent person as a result of your trauma. So you you come out of the process stronger and better than you were before, which is kind of an ancient concept, Sean. I mean, a lot of most of the world's faith traditions talk, it's, it's, it's a oversimplified, but what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Right. But there is a science to how we do that. And higher education can be one of those interventions that can make that happen. And when I talk about higher ed, it's not the earning and learning. It's the fact that people that are hurt and damaged and suffering, if they're in a classroom experience that's built on positive relationships, that sees people as knowledgeable assets rather than its deficits, if they're environments where adversity and struggle is normalized and talked about, if they're interacting with faculty that are inclusive and provide professional discretion, these are environments where people thrive and they grow and they become stronger. And I would never wish trauma on somebody, but there are instances, if nurtured correctly, and I'm saying higher education is one of those instances where people can recover and become better and stronger. I love that. That's exciting. And really, you see how this ties into my passion for you and your work. <laughs> it's really applicable to a lot of our demographic and social impact work that we've been doing for 20 years. So that's that's really exciting. Well, we've got a lot of other things that I'd, I'd like to talk with you about. We'll schedule a time for us to explore some of the other details of both our economic development and social impact work, but I uh, really appreciate your time with me and some of this discussion. It really it gave a good cross-section of our capability and focus and what we are, the great work that we're achieving across the U.S. So if anyone is interested in learning more about what Gay and I have talked about, we will put a litany of items in the episode notes. You can reach us, just click on those episode notes and somebody will get back to you. If you are a federal state uh, entity that is looking for ways to capture some of this f stimulus funding through grant capture 
or you're looking at job creation, if you're responsible for a demographic as a federal, state, municipal, or nonprofit entity, get a hold of us. If you're a private company that is looking to, you need to fill jobs and you're looking for somebody that can help provide jobs for individuals for jobs that you have open and are having difficulty filling, get a hold of our team. Somebody will connect with you and we can help you with any of those things. I, I mean, that is a broad spectrum of work that we can help your team or help your organization achieve. But uh, this is why we're excited about our work historically over the last 50 years and uh, the economic development and social impact work over the last 20 years. The timing on this is really great as we go into the new year. Okay, thanks again for doing this with me. I really appreciate it. It was great to be with you. And you know, I love to talk shop and I love being on your team, Sean. Thank you. All right. Thanks, everyone. And we'll connect with you next week. Thank you.